The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Um, You know, if you've ever attempted to share the eschatological view of preterism, and that's the view that, you know, believes that the Lord returned in the first century as He promised He would. But if you try to share that view with others, I think you're going to quickly find out how important Acts 11, 111 is to the discussion. Because this verse is going to come up when you try to share this view. Acts 111 says, They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Yeshua who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you've watched him go into heaven. Now, most people who hold a futuristic view would use Acts 1.11 as a proof to say that Christ has not returned in the second coming. Why not? Because when, you know, according to this text, they say he returns, first of all, in the future. Well, it's future when they wrote this. Okay. But it's not the same future. They say He will come in a physical body and everyone will see Him. Now, of course, they attribute that to the marvel of TV now because you can all be watching TV and watch the Lord return in bodily form. Um, and, and I don't care what you pick up, what study aid you pick up. Like, for example, the Faith Life Study Bible commenting on verse 10 and 11 says this, the angels attest to Jesus' future bodily Return. So there's going to, you know, what's, and have you ever thought, thought about this? What's it mean, bodily return? Are we going to see a, a Jewish man, you know, five foot something, come back with Jewish clothes on from the first century? Is that what we're talking? Or will he be dressed in modern clothes? Or I, I don't, you know, what's this supposed to look like? A man just floating back? Is he going to be big? Is he going to be normal? I, See, most people would say that in just the same way here means that Yeshua is going to come exactly the way He left in 111. So for our time this morning, I want to look at the text of Acts 1, 9-11 and see if we can come to an understanding on what exactly it is saying, listen, to the first century audience. Because that's how we, you know, people always say, well, you know what this means to me? And you know what I say? Who cares? Who cares what it means to you? What does it mean? That's what's important. What did it mean, first of all, to the people to whom it was written? That's what we have to know. And then we have to know what does it mean, and then you can apply it to yourself. But people say, to me this means, and I'm like, oh, that, you know, it's not at all what it's talking about. All right? Well, in the first chapter of the book of Acts, we see the resurrected Christ teaching His disciples about the kingdom of God. And He's opening their minds to understand these truths. And after spending 40 days teaching them, Yeshua commissions them to proclaim the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remote parts of the earth. And then He leaves, and He ascends to the Father. And verse 9 says, And after He had said these things, He was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received Him out of their sight. Now we learn from Luke's former narrative. You know, Luke wrote Acts. He wrote the Gospel of Luke also. And we learn from the Gospel 
that while Yeshua was in the act of blessing them with his hands uplifted, which was a rabbinical form of blessing, he departed from them and went to heaven. Acts 24, 50 and 51, and he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came about that while he was blessing them, he parted from them. Now these texts are talking about the doctrine of the ascension. The ascension of Yeshua is a central element in the Christian tradition. It's included in two of the classic Christian creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. They affirm that Yeshua ascended into heaven. Now the word ascension, by that word, we mean the removal of Yeshua from this earth into a different place or sphere, which we call heaven. A place seen by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 as high and lifted up, a place of sovereign control and authority. The ascension means the Lord's physical removal from His people on earth and from His present state of affairs. See, they were used to walking with Him, talking with Him, eating with Him. He's leaving. It's a removal. It's a change of position and locale. The ascension and the pouring out of the Spirit are connected. Yeshua told them, if I don't go, the Spirit's not coming. John 16. But now I'm going to Him who sent me. Referring to the Father. None of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper shall not come to you. But if I go away, I will send Him to you. So He's going and He's sending the Spirit. So it's imperative that He leaves so the Spirit can come. Only after He ascended does the Spirit come. Now, I believe that reflecting on the ascension, Paul wrote this, Therefore, also God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name. Therefore, begins this section, this is a contrast. Because of Christ's humility, and if you read you know, Philippians 2, verses 6-8, through 8, deals with the humility of Christ. And then His ascension follows in verses 9-11. through 11. And there's really a, a divine a biblical principle in operation here. It's a principle we see all through Scripture. It's this. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Over and over, we see that in Scripture. Because that's what God wants. He wants us humble before Him, and when we humble ourselves, He exalts us. We try to exalt ourselves, God brings us low. And so, this is Christ. He humbled Himself in the act of becoming a man to die for our sins, God exalted him. Now the words highly exalted here, huperapso'o, means to elevate to a surpassing position. To exalt beyond all others. To exalt to the highest maximum majesty. This particular exaltation is so great that this particular Greek word is not used anywhere else in the whole Bible. So our Lord changed residence in hypostatic union from earth to heaven 40 days after the resurrection. He came back after the resurrection. He dealt with them, taught them. Then He ascended to the right hand of God. Hebrews 12, 12-13 says, But He, after offering one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time onward until His enemies be made a footstool for His feet. Now, Peter put it this way, Who is at the right hand of God? having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers been subjected to Him. Now, God is omnipresent, right? 
right? All of God is everywhere. So how do you get at the right hand of omnipresence? Being at the right hand of God is a metaphor, okay? It's not mean if you could see into heaven, you could see God on the throne, you could see Yeshua sitting next to Him. That's not the idea here. It's a metaphor for the place of supreme privilege and divine authority. And we can determine what this statement means by looking at other scriptures where the meaning is clear. For example, in Genesis 48, uh, 8-20, we find Jacob, who was called Israel, being brought Joseph's two sons. Remember that? And laying his hands on them uh, shortly before his death, and he's blessing them. Well, in verse 17, we see Joseph trying to remove his father's hands. Oh no, Dad, you got the hands wrong. This is the older one. He needs to have the right hand. This is the younger one. He needs to let... We need to swap these hands around. Because the firstborn had special rights concerning inheritance. But Jacob prophetically saw that Ephraim would be greater than his brother, his older brother, Manasseh. So he had deliberately laid his right hand on the hand of Ephraim. 19 says this, So his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he. And his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So, his younger brother is going to be greater. The right hand, therefore, is a position of superior superiority over others and greater blessing than being at the left hand. Now, notice that in this verse, Jacob says clearly that Ephraim shall be greater. The right hand is a place of honor above all others. We have to understand biblical metaphors. You know, we can't think literally on everything, and we you'll really get confused. All right? Psalm 1611, Thou will make known to me the path of life, and thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forever. 110.1 says, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now when David speaks of the Messiah as being seated at the right hand of the Lord, he's saying that Christ is to be given a position of great power and authority, a place of unequaled honor and blessing. Now these concepts are at the heart of the New Testament usage of the saying that Yeshua has been exalted to the right hand of the Father. He's been elevated to a position that can neither be equaled or better. He's the supreme head over all things. Now, the ascension of Christ was prophesied throughout the Tanakh. For example, Isaiah 52 says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Psalm 16 says this, I have set Yahweh continually before me, because He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken, therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely, for thou wilt not abandon my soul to Sheol, neither wilt thou allow the Holy One to undergo decay. Thou wilt make known to me the path of life, in thy presence is fullness of joy in thy right hand. There is pleasures forevermore. Now this prophecy takes us traces Christ from the cross through the resurrection back to the glory at the right hand through the ascension. Psalm 110, verse 5. The Lord is at the right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of His wrath. So Christ is exalted, and in His exaltation He is exalted over everything. He will shatter kings in the day of His wrath. Now at the ascension, when Yeshua disappeared from their sight, He sat down, at the right hand of God. 
Well, verse 9 says, you read this text, it says, after he said these things, he was lifted up while they're looking, so he's, you know, floating up, you're looking, a cloud received him out of their sight. So physically, what happened here? Is it that they're talking to Yeshua and he just starts to levitate? He just starts to float up in the air, and then he disappears in a cloud? Is that what's happening? That's what it sounds like, right? Let me say this. (laughs) Okay? When we're dealing with the New Testament, where do we go for commentary? Biblical commentary on the New Testament. We go to the Tanakh. Okay? We go back to what people call the Old Testament. You will never be able to understand the New Testament apart from understanding the Tanakh. All right? If you don't understand the language in the first three quarters of the Bible, you're not going to get the language in the last quarter because you're coming in at the end of the book and you're reading something. You say, I know what that means. No, that meaning has been developed in the first three quarters. You can't start with the New Testament. You've got to understand the whole book because the story doesn't start at the New Testament. It starts way long time ago. Alright? So, Acts 1.9, I think, is a good illustration of this principle. Because if we don't understand what the talk is teaching about clouds, we're going to be lost. Now, we, 21st century Americans, we read clouds. We know, I know what a cloud is. I saw one yesterday, right? That's what it's talking about, right? Cloud. Just a puffy little white thing out there, right? That's how... That's what we think of clouds. Well, the idea in this text and from Scripture is not that Yeshua disappeared into a white, puffy cloud. Okay? They're not saying it's a cloudy day. When Luke writes, a cloud received him out of their sight, they'd recognize that what he's saying is Yeshua had gone to Yahweh. He'd gone to Yahweh. Because when Yahweh is revealed throughout the Scripture, He regularly did so in a cloud. A cloud represented the presence of God. Look at Exodus 16.10. And it came about as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of Yahweh appeared in a cloud. So this cloud was a representation of Yahweh. It indicated God's presence. So what's happening in Acts 1-9 is Yeshua is going into the presence of Yahweh. Exodus 19-9, And Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I shall come to you in a thick cloud, in order that the people may hear what I speak to you, and may also believe it, believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to Yahweh. So this idea that it's a presence of the Lord. Exodus 34-5, and Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood there with him. And he called upon the name of Yahweh. So the cloud represented his presence. Leviticus 16.2 And Yahweh said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil, before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. The cloud the presence of Yahweh. Numbers 11.25 Then Yahweh came down in a cloud and spoke to him. And he took the Spirit was upon him and he placed it upon the 70 elders. And it came about that when the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied. But they didn't do it again. 
So the idea of a cloud would speak to them. Again, these are Jewish men. Okay? These are men that are steeped in the Tanakh. They know their Bible. They're familiar with this language. So this idea of a cloud, they, they get that. They get the symbolism of what's going on here. And they would further remember that when the Son of Man was received His kingdom, He went in the clouds of heaven. See, this Daniel was a very important passage to them. Daniel 7, 13. It says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. So here we have this cloud coming into the presence of the Ancient of Days. And He came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him. And to Him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. So notice here that the Son of Man, He comes up to the Ancient of Days and He's presented before Him. Yeshua receives His kingdom and He sits down at the right hand of God awaiting the conquest of His enemies. So the idea of Yeshua going and coming on clouds is familiar, apocalyptic language that the prophets use to identify Him as Yahweh. That's what they're saying here. When Yeshua comes in the clouds, He's doing what Yahweh does. So it's identifying Him as Yahweh. Only Yahweh came on the clouds. That's a claim to deity. So they very well understood His entering in the cloud as His departing to His heavenly throne. He's going into the presence of Yahweh. Now this was the Shekinah cloud. You've heard it pronounced Shekinah. Shekinah cloud. It was a cloud which hid the presence of God. It was the same cloud of smoke that Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6.4. It was the same cloud that led the Israelites through the wilderness. It indicated the presence of God. So, this cloud is taking, you know, they, he's lifted up while they were looking. They're looking on. They're watching this. This is a present active participle of the Greek word blepo which according to BAGD is used abstractly. They say there was no object at which the disciples were looking. Thus it may simply mean in their sight or in their presence. While they were there, this happened. He says it's used this way in 1 Clement 25.4. Yeshua then is said to have been lifted up, which is the Greek word epairo which is in the passive form, and it figuratively connotes the lifting up of someone in stature or dignity. See, it's not an idea of levitation here. He's being lifted up by the cloud because he's going into the presence of Yahweh. He's going to the right hand of God. So he's actually, his, in dignity, in stature, he's being lifted up. The only other use of this word cited by BAGD is 1 Clement 45.8. And it does not denote a literal physical elevation of a person, but instead describes the exaltation of somebody. So Christ is being exalted in the presence of His disciples as He goes into the presence of Yahweh. W. Neal writes this, It would be a grave misunderstanding of Luke's mind and purpose to regard his account of the ascension of Christ as other than symbolic and poetic. He is not describing an act of levitation. See, that is so important. But when you read this text, that's what you think. That's what you see. He lifted up, you know, but the, the lifting up is not physical lifting up. He's being exalted. 
Because he's going to the right hand of God. He's lifted up while they're looking on and the cloud received him out of their sight. So a correct understanding of this would be may not have anything to do with Yeshua floating up into a cloud. You know, I don't think that's what it's talking about here. But in fact, it's speaking of his exaltation into the presence of Yahweh. But either way, the main idea here is that Yeshua is exalted to the right hand of God. It's a position of superiority above all others. Now, as God, he's incapable of exaltation. But as the God-man, he could be lifted up from humility, which he came as he became a man in his hypostatic union. That was humility. He's lifted to the highest glory. So the God-man is exalted. Look what Ephesians says. When he brought up about, which he brought about in Christ. When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand, there's that high exalted place, in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him the head over all things to the church. The Christ is exalted to the head of everything. His absolute authority, absolute power. That's what took place in His ascension. He's exalted to the right hand. Now with the ascension, Yeshua wanted His followers to know that He was gone for good. As opposed to the way that they had a relationship. You know, they're not going to eat with them anymore like they did. They're not going to do all that. He appeared and He reappeared during that 40 years. I mean, that 40-day time after the resurrection, talked with them, met with them, taught them. And it's very important at this point to understand this is not just another coming and going. This is the promised ascension when Yeshua said He would go to the Father and He would send back His Spirit to empower them to accomplish their mission. He's gone in the way they knew Him. Alright? And then in verse 10 it says, As they were gazing intently into the sky, while He's departing, the old two men in white clothing stood beside them. All right, gazing intently into the sky. The disciples stand in awe, gazing for an extended period of time as the cloud departs. Now Luke uses the verb to look intently, often in Acts, in connection with the miraculous. So they're like, oh, he's going to Yahweh. He's on the cloud. He is Yahweh. I mean, they're getting this. Now the two men, who by the description here are being two men in white clothing, who are these guys? These are angels, all right? This is how angels are depicted throughout the Gospels, all right? They're there, they got this this glow about them, their clothing, you know. These men, these two men, also appeared in front of the women in Luke 24, 4. These men in Acts were like them, and Luke wants us to consider them, I think, as witnesses. There had to be two witnesses that saw an event, according to Deuteronomy 19, 15, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. These guys are there, they're witnessing it. Now, there may also be some imagery here in line with Elisha's experience. Remember when Elijah ascended? I mean, he just go up and, you know, Elisha said, hey, you know, I want, I want some power. You know, give me some of that power, you know. And he says, okay, if you see me, you get some power. And so there, there might be some play here on that. You know, the disciples are watching him go. They're becoming empowered by the Holy Spirit. I think that's, you know, there's a picture here. Uh, between the, these two. Alright, verse 11 says, And they said, Men of Galilee, the angels are talking to the, the disciples here, why do you stand looking in the sky? You know, they're just like looking up, amazed. This Yeshua has been taken up from you into heaven. Well, come, 
in just the same way you watch them go into heaven. So what do the angels tell the apostles here? What's the bottom line of what they're saying here? They're saying that Yeshua who's leaving will return. He's coming back. He's going to come again. And it's really agreed by all. I haven't found anybody disagrees with this. Acts 1.11. That Yeshua has been taken into heaven and He's going to come back again. This refers to the second coming of Christ. The parousia. There's not really any argument about that. A lot of other things are argued about. That's not. They see this. He's, he's telling them He's coming back. There'll be a second coming. There'll be a parousia. Now, was this something new to the apostles? When, when the angels said this, oh, He's coming back? We didn't know He's coming back. Not at all. They, this wasn't new to them. You should have been teaching them this the whole time He's with them. What's interesting in this verse, what is rare here, is that it talks about the second coming, but doesn't give us a time statement. That's unusual. It's very unusual in the Scriptures to talk about the second coming and not tell us when the second coming is going to happen. Not have a time statement attached to it. But let's reason through this for a second, okay? Even though there's no time reference in this verse, I think that you understand there's not two second comings, okay? That would be a third coming then if there, you know, you can't have two second comings. You can have a second and a third, okay? And for a while, you know, John Bray used to believe that. John Bray said, you know, all, he came to the position where he said all New Testament Scripture talks of the second coming, and that happened in AD 70. But, he says, I believe there's a third coming. It's not talked about in Scripture. And I'm like, you could believe in little green men if you want. You know, it's not in the Scripture. And then, he, then Bray came to the position, he goes, this is foolish. I'm believing something that the Scripture doesn't talk about. It's over. He came. Second coming's over. All right, so he came to that position. Now, so, okay, we understand that. Even though there's not a time reference here, there's only one second coming. And Acts, all people are agreed, Acts 111 is the second coming. So there's no time statement here. So we've got to go to other scriptures and see the time statements. They're the same time statements for this text, because there's not two second comings. Yeshua taught his disciples over and over that he would return. But most Christians miss that he also tells his disciples when he will return. And I think that's really important. He doesn't leave it open. He tells them, here's when I'm coming back. But we miss it today because we've been programmed to think differently. Alright? For example, let's, let's look at a few verses in Matthew. Matthew 10, 23. But whenever they persecute you in the city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you shall not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Alright, now here's the thing. To understand this verse, first thing we need to know is, who is the you in this verse? <laughs> no, it's not you. It doesn't say Jeff. For truly I say to Jeff. For truly I say to you, 21st century Christians. First of all, who's Matthew writing to? He's writing to first century people, right? Let's back up. Let's go to Matthew 10.1. Having summoned the twelve disciples... He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now, so he's talking to the disciples. That's the context. Context is king in Scripture. 
All right, we've got to know the context. If you read verses 2 through 22, you'll notice the personal pronoun you referring to the 12 used over and over and over. So Yeshua uses the second person plural throughout the discourse to make this point more than clear. There's nothing in the passage that gives any indication that Yeshua has any other audience in view other than the people he's talking to. Don't insert yourself into things where you don't belong. Okay? So he's talking to the twelve, and then in verse 23 he says, but whenever they persecute you, you disciples, I'm talking to you, when they persecute you, because they got persecuted, in this city, flee to the next. In other words, you're being persecuted, get out of there, go. For I say to you, the twelve, you shall not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. So you means the twelve in the first century. It does not mean us in this century. You know, we have to understand the hermeneutical principle of audience relevance. We know that you means the twelve. It doesn't mean us. He's not talking to us. This was written to real, literal people. So we have to understand what it meant to them. In this verse, Yeshua is saying to the twelve disciples that they can run from city to city and they won't have gone to all the cities to escape persecution before He returns. Now, He's dealing with persecution. I know you're being persecuted. Go to city. Go to another city. Don't worry. I'll be back and end that persecution. And, we, and most Christians today say, He hasn't returned yet. Well, that's a lot of persecution. I think they've gone through all the cities by now. No, I think they're probably dead. Don't you think? Keep running. Keep fleeing. I'll be back to end this. Alright? A promised deliverance. This is basically what he's saying. He's promised deliverance to the twelve. It really sounds from this verse like Yeshua says He's going to return in their lifetime. Is that possible? Could He have returned and we missed it or something? Look at another text. Matthew 16, 27. The Son of Man is going to come, that's the second coming, in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then will recompense every man according to his deeds. No one argues this verse is talking about the second coming. He comes, the Son of Man is going to come, that's the second coming, and He's going to come with His angels. Alright? They're coming with Him. And He's coming for what purpose? To recompense every man. Now let's compare this with Revelation. 22.12. 22.12. Yeshua says, Behold, I'm coming sometime way off in the near distant future. That's not what it says. He says, Behold, I'm coming quickly. Let's say He meant 2,000 years later. Then I guess He doesn't know what quickly means. Because that's not how you, I, or anybody takes the word quickly. Okay? Alright? And He says, so He says He's coming in both these texts. And then He says, My reward's with me. Both these texts. So, Christ is speaking to His disciples of His second coming. Look at the next verse in Matthew. Truly I say to you, again, the disciples, there are some of those who are standing here. Alright, got disciples, you guys are all standing. There's some of you guys, you're not going to die until you see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Again, who is the you in this verse? It's the disciples. So Yeshua is saying to His disciples who were standing in front of Him, some of you will be alive when I come back. Now some people say, well, He's talking about the transfiguration. 
Matthew 17, 2. The transfiguration was six days later. So he's saying, in six days, some of you will still be alive. Mm, no, that doesn't really fit. And did he come in glory with his angels to reward every man at the transfiguration? No. Well, some people say, well, this is Pentecost. Well, that was two months later. Only disciple who had died by then was Judas. But at Pentecost, did he come with angels? Did he come to reward every person? No, that doesn't fit either. Okay, so let me ask you something. And just, what are the possible explanations here? I see three. If you have another one, I'm willing, I'm more than open to hear what it is. All right, here's, here's the possible situations I see. Number one, some of these disciples are still alive. They're 2,000 years old. All right, listen. Okay, we believe in the inspiration of Scripture, right? All right, so he says to the disciples, some of you are still going to be here when I come back. So, number one, there's some 2,000-year-old disciples still waiting for the coming of the Lord. All right? I've run into people who believe this view. Okay? Second view, Yeshua was confused or lying. That's, I hope no one would buy that view, okay? Because that, that destroys information. And the liberals used to use this. Yeshua said he was coming back, and to that generation, he never did. Christianity is false. I've heard that argument. And listen, it's a good argument. Because Yeshua says all through the New Testament, he's coming back to those people. He's coming back soon. He's coming back quickly. He's coming back to that generation, to some of those standing here. If he didn't do it, that makes a problem for Christianity. But hang on, i got a third option. Yeshua did what he said and he returned while those disciples were still alive. That seems like the simplest answer to come to. But see, most people think, no, Yeshua did not return yet because they have a different view of the return. And so it can't happen. Well, I think it's... I, to me, Yeshua did... What he said he would do. That's the simplest answer. I'm comfortable with that. Okay? I like the fact that he kept his word. See, if you're going to believe what Yeshua is saying here, you're going to have to hold that the time of the second coming was then, and you're going to have to have a paradigm shift or view of the nature of the second coming. Time defines nature. If he came in the first century, most people view the second coming as an earth-burning global catastrophe where everything burns up and the whole world's made new. Well, you can see from Scripture the disciples didn't believe any of that. Because they got a letter that troubled them that he had already the second coming had already happened. And they're like, hey, did it already happen? You know, and Paul could have fixed that by saying, look out the window. Everything's still out there. Of course it didn't happen. But they had a different view of the nature. It wasn't what we view. So I submit to you that either Scripture is wrong about the time of the second coming, and thus is not inerrant, or our paradigms are wrong about the nature of the second coming. Now, which one of those are you more comfortable with? I want to stick with the Scripture, okay? The Scripture gives us the time of the second coming. Let's look at another verse in Matthew. Okay, we're just looking at Matthew, okay? I mean, the whole rest of the New Testament is filled with this stuff. Truly I say unto you, oh, that you again. Who is the you here? His disciples. Truly I say to you. You know, people, we read this and we say, He's talking to me. No, no, no. That Bible was written 2,000 years ago. It was written to people so they could read it 2,000 years ago. You can't inject yourself into that and think it applies to you. He says, I say to you, this generation will not pass away 
until all these things take place. Now, if you look at the way Yeshua uses the word generation, I think it's abundantly clear, it always refers to contemporaries. The Jewish people of His own period. And Yeshua here very plainly, very clearly tells His disciples that all of the things mentioned in this passage will come to pass in their generation. This includes, if you read Matthew 24, the Gospels preached to all the world, the abomination of desolation, the great tribulation, the second coming, all that's going to happen. This is so clear that it greatly troubles those who hold to a futuristic eschatology. It's clearly what he's saying. Now, think with me on this for a minute, okay? Yeshua uses the near demonstrative here, this generation. Every time this is used in the New Testament, it always refers to something that is near in terms of distance or time. For example, if I said to you, this building is going to be remodeled. What building am I talking about? The one we're in, right? I mean, doesn't that make sense? This building! You'd say, well, yeah, some future building. I said this one! You're not listening! And you, he said this generation. You know I'm referring to the building we're in, the one we're sitting in. But if I said to you, that building is going to be remodeled, you'd probably say, what building? You know I'm not going with this one, that one. Some other distant, some other building we're not in. Well, Yeshua could have said that generation, the one 2,000 years away. But that's not who he was talking about. He said this generation. You're referring to the one that was there listening to what he was saying. This generation. The one I'm talking to, you people. Listen, you're not going to pass away. This generation for a generation biblically is 40 years. All you people won't be done until all these things take. All the things I've just talked about in Matthew 24 take place. It's simple. Okay? It's clear. He's not trying to make it complicated. When the Bible speaks of the coming of Christ, it does so in the same manner that Tanakh spoke about the coming of God. Now, this is what's important. This is where people really get confused. I'll say this again, it's because we don't have a working knowledge of the first three quarters of the Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures, that we get so confused when we come to the New Testament. Christ's coming was not to be viewed physically. This is a great verse. You've got to understand this verse. This helps us put things in perspective, alright? The oracle concerning Egypt. The oracle is a judgment. There's going to be a judgment on Egypt, okay? Behold, Yahweh is riding on a swift cloud. Now, if you get something in your mind that God is surfing and he's got he's got a cloud under his feet, and he's you know, that's that's not the imagery they're trying to portray here. He's about to come to Egypt. Who's coming to Egypt? Yahweh. Okay? The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. Now, first of all, I believe this is polemic. In Ugaritic and the Hebrew, Baal's epithet was the storm god. He was one who rides the clouds. That's how they viewed Baal. Baal was the cloud rider. And so the writers of Scripture are saying, no, Baal's not the cloud rider. Yahweh's the cloud rider. All right, He is the supreme God of all. Now we know from the next chapter in Isaiah that Yahweh used the Assyrians as instruments of His wrath on Egypt. The Assyrians came into Egypt and they destroyed it. And yet, the text says, 
Yahweh's riding a swift cloud. The idols of Egypt will tremble at His presence. Did Yahweh physically come to Egypt? No one saw Him. How did He come to Egypt? This is what's important. He came to Egypt in judgment. His presence was made known in the judgment of Egypt. Now God's given this declaration. Woe, an oracle of Egypt. Egypt's going to be judged. I'm going to judge. And yet the Assyrians come in. They were the ones literally present. But it says He's going to do it. So we need to understand this if we're going to understand the second coming of Christ. Because Christ's second coming was not physical, was not Him floating down out of heaven. His coming was the same as His Father's. He came in judgment. The nature of the second coming was not physical, bodily as a man. Christ came in judgment against Old Covenant Israel. And He destroyed Jerusalem. And this happened in A.D. 70. And He used the Roman army. Christ, you know, you didn't see a physical Christ. The Roman army came in and destroyed them, and he came in judgment on Israel. Now, I think all Christians believe in the second coming of Christ. Would you agree with that? I mean, everybody, the Bible is full of it, okay? You can't not believe it. To deny the fact of the second coming is to deny the inspiration of Scripture. You agree with that? Okay. Well, I believe that the time of the second coming is just as clear as the fact of the second coming. And I believe that to deny the time statements that the Bible gives of the second coming is also to deny inspiration of Scripture. Now, you still agree with me? Because you can't say, oh, I believe the Bible says second. Well, every one of them, almost, has a time stamp on it. Quickly, shortly, soon, some of you standing here, this generation, almost every one of them, so you can't put the time statements out and say, I believe in the second coming. Well, the Bible talks about when it's going to happen also. So if you attempt, if you're foolish enough to try to share this view with somebody, I think you're going to understand what I mean by Acts 11 is a very important text. Because it's probably the text that is brought up against preterists more than any other. Listen to what some have written about Acts 1.11. Dave Guzik says, Jesus will return just as he left. That's typical. You hear that a lot, right? Physically, visibly, and to the Mount of Olives. Same clothes, same height, you know, all that stuff. Is that what's going to happen? John MacArthur says this, the same Christ who ascended into heaven in Acts 1-9 will return in the same way. He won't be different. Just like he left. He'll return in the same glorified body the disciples saw when Christ joined them for breakfast by the Sea of Galilee in John 21, 4, 15. MacArthur goes on to say he will be in the same body Thomas saw when he said, My Lord and my God. All right. Uh, Ray Stedman says this. Now, the angels tell us that though he was to go away, his return is certain. This same Jesus, they say, will come back again. When he comes, he will come exactly the same way as they saw him go. Exactly. Now hang on to this, because we're going to look at this Scripture and see if this is this really what the Scripture is saying. But Stedman goes on to say this, Just as he stepped into invisibility then, he will step back again into visibility. Suddenly he will be back. Men are today looking for a solution to the ecological crisis, the environmental crisis that confronts us today. How shall we solve these problems? 
Well, we shall not. Stedman goes on to say, they're going to get much worse. The crisis will get so bad that human life will actually be unable to exist any longer on the earth. Jesus said so. Where did he say that? So, isn't that a great view of the future? Don't worry, people, it's going to keep getting worse till it's so miserable you can't even live here. That doesn't sound exciting to me. The Preterist view is a very positive view of eschatology, okay? That's not encouraging at all. And this is a good example of how bad theology affects you on a daily basis. I mean, if you're looking for the world to get better every day and you're just going to be miserable until it's so miserable you can't... We're all doomed! That's not a very positive way to look at things. Why don't you become a Christian? You can be miserable like all the rest of us. How does that evangelism work? You know? Keith Matheson, who was a very vocal opponent of preterism, declaring preterists as heretics, says this, Traditionally, Acts 1.11 has been understood to be a clear and unambiguous promise of the personal, visible, bodily second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth. Now, the argument runs like this. If Yeshua ascended visibly in a physical body, and He is to come in the same way as He left, then He's to return in a visible, physical body. And since this clearly hasn't happened yet, for we don't have any record of Him you know, physically, visibly coming back to earth, and He's not with us now, therefore the, fu- the second coming is still future. Well, if it is still future, then we got a problem with Yeshua's teaching. It's not accurate. So what else is not accurate then? So you can't be messing with the Scripture and say, yeah, I still believe in all that. Well, you're destroying time statements. Very important time statements. Now, the majority opinion on the nature of the second coming is that it's going to be future to us. It's going to be physical, physical, visible, bodily return of the Lord to earth, and every eye is going to see Him. Is that what the text says? Well, they say His ascension was physical and visible, so won't His return be also? It says He will come just the same way. So you read that and you think, He's going to come just like He left, right? Exactly the same. Well, just the same way are the Greek phrase, Han Trophon. And by examining the usage of hontrophon in the New Testament, it's clear that this phrase does not mean exactly the same way. It's the idea of similar. Similar in fashion. For example, look at one of its uses, Luke 13, 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who sent her, how often I wanted to gather your children together in exactly the same way as a hen does. You ever see a hen gather her children? Is that how it's going to happen? under her wings, and you would not have it. Did he want to gather Jerusalem like a hen does? Exactly the same? I don't think so. In just the same way doesn't mean exactly the same. That his coming was not to be exactly as he left in Acts 1.11 is made clear by comparing Scripture with Scripture. Notice what Matthew says about his coming. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. This is obviously different than Acts 1.11. There's no lightning in Acts 1.11. Here we got lightning. It's a visible cloud or lightning coming. Paul describes it this way. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven, second coming, with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. We don't have any of those things in Acts 1.11. No shouting, no angels, no nothing. So, 
This is not just the same way as Luke describes. What about 2 Thessalonians? And to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us well, well when you, the Lord Yeshua shall be revealed from heaven, again, the second coming, with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Yeshua. This is different than Acts 11. We got angels here, we got flaming fire, we got retribution. None of this is in Acts. Notice what John says, Revelation 19 11. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. So let me ask you this Is it a horse or is it a cloud? Maybe it's a horse on a cloud. Put them both together. So you can see, you know, from the different comparing Scripture with Scripture is not exactly how we see in Acts 1.11. It just doesn't add up. And that's why we have to compare Scripture with Scripture. Because he's not talking literal details here. These are metaphors. He says in verse 9, a cloud received him out of their sight, and then he says he will come in just the same way. I think the emphasis here is that Christ's coming would be a cloud coming. He left in a cloud. He's coming in a cloud. And if we understand the Bible, it's an apocalyptic symbol of judgment. He's coming in judgment. When Luke says that Yeshua was taken up in a cloud received him out of sight, he's not telling us what the weather was like that day. It's part of the, the, the way that the Father, the part the Father played in the ascension. He's going to His Father. And when he comes on the cloud, he's coming in judgment. There's no scripture that explicitly teaches that Yeshua returned in a physical, bodily fashion. And I think an understanding of the language of scripture will help us see that his coming is not to be physical, but a coming in judgment, as we read in Isaiah 19. The Lord came to Egypt. Okay? Yeshua came to Jerusalem in judgment. He came in judgment on old covenant Israel. Listen, when Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70, that was the end of the old covenant. Okay, we still got Jews and we still got them practicing nothing near what the Bible says they're supposed to do. No one has ever, no Jew has ever sacrificed an animal since AD 70. There's no priesthood because all the records are being destroyed. That is done. God was saying, I'm done with this system. This is old covenant. It's over. We're going into the new covenant. That was the final, that was it. He ushered in the consummated new covenant. That's what it was about. It was not about you know, him floating out of the sky and you know, making utopia for us. Listen, we live in the new covenant, which is the kingdom of God. He dwells with His people. He's here with us. He is present with us. Most people would admit that. Oh yeah, I believe He's here. He's present. That's the blessing of the new covenant. I'll be there. They'll be my people. I'll be their God. I'll dwell with them. They didn't have that in the Old Covenant. He was behind a veil. In the Holy of Holies, they couldn't get at Him. God's with His people now. That's what it's all about. He came to destroy that Old Covenant, and that cloud is so important that we understand what this is about. And again, it's simply comparing Scripture with Scripture, not going outside the Bible and looking up all these different ideas. First, use Scripture. It's the best authority on interpreting Scripture. He came in judgment on that old system. It's over. Consummated the new covenant. 
so he ever dwells with his people. Now, you know, when I first came to see this view, you know, I felt like, so this means that we're living in the new heavens and new earth. And I was like, that doesn't seem right to me. But we have to understand the new heavens and new earth are spiritual. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's not a physical kingdom. And listen, we have access to God 24-7 now. We are victorious. The battle has already been fought and won. We're child, children of the king. And we're to be ambassadors in this age to talk to others, to share with others the beauty, the glory of the new covenant and grace. And someday we'll leave this earth physically and move into the presence of God in full glory. Move into a new realm with new bodies. I'm kind of excited about that day. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, Lord. I thank you for this text and Lord, I pray that you would give us the heart of Bereans, Lord, that we would not accept things that we hear. We would not eject, reject things that we hear, but we would ponder them and we would dig into the Scriptures and we would study to see if these things are so. And then we would accept or reject. Father, help us to be Bereans, to study, to look, to dig into Your Word. Father, I thank You for the clarity of the New Testament. I thank you for the time statements that are so clear, and I pray that you'd open our eyes and we may be able to clearly see what you're saying. I thank you, Lord. I rejoice. We're not looking for something in the future. We've got everything right now. Help us to rejoice in it, Father. Amen.